God upon him to preach to us tonight. Don't you want him to preach to you tonight? Let's lift your hands toward him. God anoint Brother Sanford tonight. Preach the word to us. God bless you, brother. Take your time. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise this evening. Oh, let's just take a moment and just give the Lord praise on a Wednesday night. Aren't you thankful that you serve a good God? I believe it is the book of Romans that tells us it is the goodness of the Lord that leadeth men to repentance. Because we serve a good God. In fact, it was David who said, Surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's a good God. He's a merciful God. In fact, when you begin to study praise in the Bible, you find out that the biblical reason why we give God praise has nothing to do with what we possess. It has nothing to do with what we're going through at that moment. But the biblical reason, the theme of praise in the Bible is because we serve a good God and we serve a merciful God. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not, but they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Can I tell you the reason why we're here today is not because we've prayed enough. It's not because we fasted enough. It's not because we're good enough. But the reason why we're still here today is because it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. Aren't you thankful every single day we wake up, there's brand new mercy for us? You know, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but you know, there's two things that God does every day. The first thing God does is He makes the day itself. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So the first thing God does every day is He makes the day. The second thing God does every day is He gives me mercy to make it through the day He just made. Because it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. So live your life with a confidence knowing that whatever happens tomorrow, God's made that day. And God has already allotted the mercy I need to make it through that day. That's why we can say this is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> this is why we can rejoice and be glad in it. Because regardless of what happens in that day, God made the day. And God has already prepared the mercy I need to make it through that day. Aren't you thankful we serve a God that is not caught off guard by anything? He knows what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and next month. And he says, I'm not just going to make the day, but I'm going to prepare mercy for you. Because we serve a good and merciful God. Amen. And it's an honor to be back in the house of the Lord with you this evening and give honor once again to Brother and Sister Moore in this great church. And it's just good to see you in the house of the Lord. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 through verse 19. And I apologize. I just remember that I did not stop by the sound room when I walked in. But Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Amen. Thank God for good media people. A good sound man. <laughs> you know, it's always a sound man's fault. 
If a sound man makes it to heaven, it's going to be a miracle, Brother Troy. You can have a blowout on the way to church. It's the sound man's fault. You can trip coming through the front door. Well, it's the sound man's fault. Thank God for good sound men and good media people. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, what, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And for a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you about something that's been on my heart and spirit leading up to this service. My title tonight is simply, Things That Happen at the Gates of Hell. Things that happen at the gates of hell, and you may be seated tonight. Thank you for standing. The geographical location of this portion of Scripture in Matthew 16 is certainly something we normally don't consider when we begin to read and talk about Matthew chapter 16. It is a very familiar passage to most of us, if not all of us in this room, uh, but the fact is, we probably never stopped to take notice of where all of this took place. But it was very plainly told in the Scripture that this incident we all are probably very familiar with uh, happened and took place in the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, while only mentioned twice in the entire Bible, both referring to this very occasion, was a city that sat situated some 35 miles north of Galilee, where Jesus and the disciples had been previously ministering in. Now, Caesarea Philippi and Galilee, we understand, were both very religious cities of their day. But the religious activities that carried out or were carried out in Caesarea varied greatly from those that were carried out in Galilee. We understand that by reading the Bible, the region of Galilee was rich in Jewish customs, it was rich in Jewish tradition and also religion, but the region of Caesarea Philippi was a place where idol worship ran rampant. It was a city where immorality and idolatry was at an all-time high. It was a city that was known as, in those days, a Roman stronghold. It also boasted having the highest elevation, the highest mountain peak in all of the land of Israel. It was the prolific Jewish writer Josephus who tells us in his writings that it was the Roman general Titus who later came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was this man who exhibited his greatest gladiators there in that city in a palace where spectators could come and see them on display. 
This city, Caesarea Philippi, when you begin to study it, uh, was the ultimate city with this mixture of Roman garrison and palace uh, because it was a city that was known for its wine, women, and songs. Uh, We understand in 2023 America that we've got cities in our nation today that have been given handles or nicknames that appropriately describe the city that we're talking about in that moment. We understand that Chicago has been called the Windy City. New York is called the Big Apple. It is New Orleans that has been called the Big Easy. Las Vegas is called Sin City. Detroit is called Motor City. And then Hollywood has been known as Tinseltown. But can I submit to you this evening that it has been historically proven that the city of Caesarea Philippi also had a handle. It also had a nickname that it was given. And the nickname of Caesarea Philippi in those days was literally the gates of hell. You've got to understand that it was called such because this in that city was where the cave of Baal was located. You've got to understand that in their pagan minds, the people that lived in Caesarea Philippi literally believed the cave of Baal created a gateway to the underworld where fertility gods lived during the winter months. And they believed that the opening of that cave, the opening and the entrance of the cave of Baal in their minds was literally the entrance or the opening of hell itself. They believed that when they stood at the entrance of the cave of Baal, they were literally standing at the entrance or the gates of hell. So understand that this was a city that was known throughout the regions for being a literal hellhole. It was almost like the red district of their culture and their day because it was a stronghold powerhouse for everything that was anti-God and went against God's plan. So may I submit to you this evening that it was not an accident. This very city is the setting of the occasion when Jesus would march his disciples out of Galilee and bring them right into the city of Caesarea Philippi, right to the foot of a very familiar mountain that was known throughout the Old Testament. The mountain in which they stood at the base of was Mount Hermon. If you remember all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, it was God himself who had so directed that when everybody else was claiming Mount Hermon as their place of idolatry and as their place for pagan worship and their place for pagan gods, it was God himself, Brother Moore, who stepped out in Deuteronomy and said this, Mount Hermon is Mount Zion. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, that is a very amazing and powerful statement because I am convinced the moment that God stepped out of nowhere and said Mount Hermon is Mount Zion, I believe it was the Lord's way of saying that I want you to understand that no city and no place and no location will become so deeply entrenched in sin that I, the God of heaven, cannot step into that city or step into that location and say this city belongs to me. You see this is why I believe Jesus walked his disciples right to the very gates of hell and said in the midst of the immorality and in the midst of the idolatry I'm going to build a church and I dare the gates of hell to try to stop me. You've got to understand what Jesus was saying.
saying when he said the gates of hell will not prevail or they will not overcome. Gates were in those days used as defensive structures in the ancient world. And by Jesus saying the gates of hell will not prevail or the gates of hell will not overcome, Jesus was simply implying that if I'm going to have a church and if my church is not just going to survive but thrive, at some point the church has got to be on the offense instead of being so defensive. Maybe this is why Jesus tells us since the day of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Can I tell everybody in this room that hell is not passive and so it's no time for the church to be passive either. Can I tell everybody on a Wednesday evening uh, that hell is bold uh, and hell is defiant uh, and so it's time for the church uh, to be bold and defiant. Uh, hell is aggressive uh, and so it's time for the church to be aggressive. Uh, that's what Jesus was saying uh, when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, he was simply saying at some point uh, the church has got to come out of the shadows uh, and at some point the church uh, has got to get out of the corner uh, and start doing uh, what they were called to to do. In fact, wasn't it the book of Acts when the man said this thing was not done in a corner? Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you in these last days, if we're going to have apostolic revival, if we're going to have a move of the Holy Ghost, it's time to stop being passive and it's time to stop being intimidated and it's time for the church of the living God to go and do what God has called us to do. Because it doesn't matter how bad our world gets. And it doesn't matter how bad our nation gets. And it doesn't matter how bad our cities are. Drugs, alcoholism, perversion, immorality. God said, you may see Mount Hermon, but I see Mount Zion. I can walk into that city and say this city belongs to me. And I've come to tell Bendale, Loosedale, Mississippi, you may see all the sin. You may see all the immorality. You may see the perversion. You may see the drug addiction. But make no mistake about it. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And you may see sin, but God says, I see a church. You may see immorality, but God says, there's going to be a church. There's going to be revival. Because you may see Mount Hermon, but God said this is Mount Zion Zion is and was a type of the church we understand and God was establishing the fact God was establishing the principle I can build my church anywhere I'll even build my church at the doorstep of hell ladies and gentlemen God called it Mount Zion because that word Zion literally means elevation it means excellency literally is the highest point that you can reach and climb. And I believe God used that mountain as an object lesson then for the children of Israel. Because when you study the region of that mountain, you find out that the time that God said it's Mount Zion, that region, that mountain was a stronghold for King Og, who was a part of the remnant of the giants. But God said, this is Mount Zion. This is where I can build my church. This is where we can have revival. And it's not an accident that Jesus took his disciples out of Galilee and into Caesarea Philippi and reminded them, don't get so caught up looking at how bad the world is. 
Don't get so distracted at the sin and the immorality and the idolatry. You just remember this one thing, boys. I will build my church, and I'm going to have a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, ladies and gentlemen, if we were the ones who were wanting to teach the following lessons, we probably would have done it in Jerusalem. We probably would have stayed in Galilee. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to walk you out of Galilee. And I'm going to walk you right to the doorstep of hell. I'm going to put you right at the threshold of hell. I'm going to park you right at the gates of hell. And I'm going to begin to teach my people some very valuable things. That is the backdrop against which we see everything begin to play out. I think it's safe in saying that it almost seems like we as the church today in June 2023, it almost at times seems like we are living in a modern-day Caesarea Philippi. It feels at times like we're living at the very gates of hell because those perilous times we read about in the Bible are being fulfilled on a daily basis right before us. Men are calling evil good and men are calling good evil. Ladies and gentlemen, immorality is running rampant. Promiscuity is being promoted. Church is being minimized and Christians are being marginalized. It feels like we're living right in the same place the disciples are in in Matthew 16. But I believe the things that Jesus showed his disciples then are the very things he wants to remind the church of today because we may be living in a dark, evil, diabolical world. We may be living at the very gates of hell, but can I tell you that there are good things. There are powerful things. There are supernatural things that happen then at the gates of hell, and the same things are going to happen now even if we're living in the gates of hell. Can I tell you the first thing that happened at the gates of hell in Matthew 16 is Jesus gave his disciples a revelation of truth. Jesus asked the question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, Lord, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. The fact is, the common thought of Jesus was scattered from A to Z. They really had no idea who Jesus was. But can I tell you that it was not an accident that Jesus asked this very question, not in Galilee. He asked the question in Caesarea. Study Caesarea when you get time, ladies and gentlemen. You will find out that not only was there immorality, there was idolatry in abundance. Because they tell me as you were to walk down the streets of Caesarea Philippi, you would find that there were shrines built to Caesar. There were shrines built to Pan. There were shrines built to Nemesis. And I know we got young ears in the house, but I'll make the statement to go on. But they even tell me, Brother Moore, that they were so perverted in their mind that they would commit certain acts with the animals that they worshipped so in hopes they could get the spirit that they worshipped to come back and begin to give them what they needed. In fact, their minds were so perverted and warped that you could walk up and down the roads and you would see vendors set up on both sides of the road and you could purchase any idol you desired to worship. One of the most famous idols you could buy, one of the most famous idols you could worship was an idol for the temple or for the goddess Diana 
whose temple resided in Ephesus. Uh, can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when you begin to understand the context of what's going on in Matthew 16, uh, you then really begin to understand uh, everything that begins to play out. Uh, because look at it now. Uh, the disciples have left Galilee. Uh, they've left Jewish tradition. Uh, they've left Jewish religiosity. Uh, they've left the comfort zone, so to speak. Uh, and God himself in the form of Jesus uh, has walked them right into the midst uh, of a world that is twisted religiously. Uh, can I tell this late that this church this evening uh, that yes, we are living uh, in a twisted world. Uh, we are living in a morally twisted world. Uh, but we are also living in a religiously twisted world. The last time that I read, there's over 4,200 different religions today. There's over 70,000 different denominations today. If you don't like one, you can have another one. You don't like that one, you can try another one. And the fact is, the number will continue to grow as the years tick off. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is, we don't just live in a morally twisted world. We live in a religiously twisted world. People are confused about church. They are confused about the Bible. They're confused about God. False religions, agnosticism, atheism, and the list goes on and on. But I'm rising tonight to tell this congregation that just like in Matthew 16, then. In these last days of 2023, there is a revelation of truth coming to our world like never before. The first thing that happened at the gates of hell in Matthew 16 is Jesus gave a revelation of truth. And I believe one of the many things that are going to happen before God comes back is there's a revelation of truth that's not just going to hit our world, but it's going to hit our nation. It there's a revelation of truth coming, and it's going to hit our city. It's going to get into our schools. It's going to get into our workplaces because the first thing that Jesus done is he gave those who were hungry a revelation of truth. I'm talking about a revelation of the Godhead, that there's not three in one or one in three. There's just one. I'm talking about a revelation like we talked about Sunday morning, uh, that when you look at Jesus, uh, you're looking at God. Uh, in fact, that's why the Bible says he is the image of God uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a revelation coming uh, that there's going to be no more confusion, uh, but God's going to reveal himself. Uh, there's a revelation coming uh, that, Philip, uh, when you've seen me, uh, you've seen the Father. Uh, there's a revelation coming uh, that in him dwells all the fullness uh, of the Godhead bodily. Uh, there's a revelation of the Godhead coming, uh, and there's there's a revelation of baptism coming. You better get ready, ladies and gentlemen. Just like you baptized two Sunday, I believe it's just the start of something great because truth is coming. Truth is coming. I wish somebody would get a hold of this right now. There's hungry people in our world. There's hungry people in our neighborhood. There's hungry people that you go to school with. There's hungry people that you work with. And my Bible says he's going to fill those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm talking about a revelation of the name of Jesus is coming. We've all heard stories about God appearing to monks overseas. I've heard stories by the scores. Monks waking up in the middle of the night and the Lord appearing to them saying, I'm Jesus. Find a Bible and follow me. I thank God for it. But my Bible also says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's no respecter of persons. My point is, if God does it over there, why can't he do it right here? 
Why can't God go up to somebody's house that's hungry and they may not have all the answers and they may not know what all the Bible means, but why can't the same God appear to them and say there's a church in Bendale, Mississippi. There's a church right down the road and they've got the answers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, one of the first things that God is going to do in these last days is he's going to give a revelation of truth to those that are sincerely hungry. Wasn't it the prophet Isaiah who said that there shall be light at evening time? And wasn't it John the Baptist when speaking of Jesus? He said in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. What are you talking about preacher? I'm talking about the same light that knocked Saul off the donkey and Acts is the same life that's going to come. I love the story of Saul because there's so much you can preach. We know the story. He's got papers in his hands ready to kill Christians. He's already held the coat while Stephen was stoned. This man's a murderer. Going to kill more Christians because he thinks they're doing away with the law of Moses. Paul was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He's on the way to Damascus, and all of a sudden there's a lot that knocks him down. Who are you? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And while all this is going on, the Lord's visiting a man named Ananias, Ananias, saying, I got somebody you need to talk to. Who is it, Lord? Saul. I'm sure his eyes got about that big. You mean the guy that just killed Stephen? Yeah, him. You mean the guy that's killing all the Christians? Yeah, him. He's coming to your door. You've got answers for him. We know the story, the lot knocks him off the, the animal and he's stricken with blindness. Saul is in blindness, but there's light about to come. Because the man Ananias is sent to tell Saul, who would later become Paul, what to do to be saved. Do you know Ananias is a Hellenized masculine form of the word grace? Grace found Saul in darkness. But grace loved him enough not to leave him in darkness. He said, I want you to arise and wash and be baptized and call on the name of the Lord. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of people stumbling in this world in darkness. They don't know what church to go to. They don't even really trust anybody anymore because they've been told this and that for years. But can I tell you, just like light came to Saul, there's light going to come into our neighborhoods. There's light. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I believe it as much as I'm standing here. Grace is going to come. Grace is going to find people. But ladies and gentlemen, even though grace finds them. It's going to demand a change. It's going to demand them to do something. And it's going to happen because the first thing that Jesus done is there was a revelation of truth that came. I believe it's going to happen to all denominations. All walks of life. All faiths. Can I tell you there's a second thing that happened at the gates of hell? Not only did Jesus give a revelation of truth, he then says, whom do men say that I am? Peter says, Lord, I know exactly who you are. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers by saying, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee. Meaning you cannot read enough and study enough to get a revelation of who Jesus is. 
You can only get a divine revelation of who Jesus is from God himself. But then Jesus says, now if we stop right there, we've got an incomplete revelation. Now, hear me out before you throw me out. I'm thankful for the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. I preached almost an hour Sunday morning. But I've also come to learn that while people in our churches can quote all the one God scriptures, while people in our churches know the mighty God in Christ, at the same time, they do not know who they are in Christ. And if we just start with Peter knowing who Jesus is, it's incomplete. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I'm glad you know who I am. Now let me tell you who you are. Thou art Peter. Can I tell everybody in this room that when you get a revelation of who Jesus is, don't stop there and don't be satisfied there. It is the greatest revelation you'll ever receive. In fact, Jesus himself said it's the greatest of all commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's the greatest. But don't stop there because there's something else tagged on to that that God in return wants to give you because once you get a revelation of who he is, he in return wants to give you a revelation of who you are because Peter if you don't know who you are you'll never preach on the day of Pentecost if you don't know who you are Peter if you don't have a revelation of who you are you're not going to fulfill what I want you to fulfill and can I tell this congregation that I'm privileged to go to a lot of places and preach a lot of churches but you'd be surprised at the amount of frustrated people that I come across because while they're faithful to church and while they're faithful to tithes and offering and while they're faithful to prayer meeting and while they're faithful to Wednesday night Bible study, they're frustrated because they feel like they have no purpose in the kingdom. And I tell everybody in this room that God did not save you and God did not wash you with His blood for you just to take up space on a pew. God did not love you enough to give you the Holy Ghost for you just to be a pew warmer and somebody that we check off the list. Well, so-and-so was here. They were here yesterday. They were here tomorrow. No, there's so much more that God wants you to do. There's so much more that God wants you to be a part of. And I'm telling you, hell's afraid of the day that the apostolic body, the apostolic church wakes up and realizes, I've got the Holy Ghost. I'm anointed. I've got the Holy Ghost. I've got a purpose. I've come to shake somebody in this house and tell you that God did not love you enough to give you the Holy Ghost for you to sit there unfulfilled. Boy, there's something on me right now. You may never preach a sermon. You may never sing a song. You may never teach a class. You may never take up the offering. But if you got the Holy Ghost, you've got a part to fulfill. You've got something God wants you to do. God have mercy. I'm telling you, I've been stuck on this for about two years because I see it continually, Brother Moore. People feel like they don't fit in and they're wasting time and they're a waste of space. I hear it all the time, I have no ministry. I told one young man some time ago, he said, I don't preach, I don't teach, I don't do this, I don't do that. I have no ministry. I said, oh, you're wrong. Paul said, we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. I said, you may never preach a, uh, preach a Sunday school class or teach a class or sing a song, but you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. 
I said, you've been given the ministry of going out into this world and finding people who are broken and people who are damaged and people who are suicidal and bring them into the church so they can be reconciled to God. Can I say this without being misunderstood? We've got enough preachers. And we've got enough musicians. And we've got enough singers. We need some people who will carry the ministry of reconciliation into our jobs and our schools and the world that we live in. That's the ministry that God has called all of us to. Peter, if you get a revelation of who you are, you'll never pray the same again. Because when you realize who you are, you'll bind things in earth. And I'll back it up in heaven. You get a revelation of who you are, you'll lose things in earth. And I'll back it up in heaven. I'm not saying be egotistical. I'm not saying be arrogant and say, look at me and look what I do. But at some point, we've got to get a revelation. We've got to get a self-confidence of ourselves in the Holy Ghost. I had a pastor tell me some time ago that he got a phone call about 1 o'clock in the morning. It was his, one of the young men in his youth group called him and said, Pastor, I need you down here now. He said, man, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. What's going on? He said, you remember so-and-so that's come to church a few times? I do. He said, well, he's here. I think he's devil-possessed. He said, what's going on? He said, he's, he's literally chased me around the parking lot. I'm on the hood of my car right now because he's trying to bite me and spit on me. I need you down here right now. That pastor says, well, I guess I'll be there in a minute. Gets up, puts his clothes on. That pastor told me as soon as he pulled in the parking lot, he stopped about 30 feet from where all this was going on. And sure enough, that dude was on the car, kicking his legs up, trying not to get bit. That pastor said he stepped out of the vehicle, shut the door, and that young man who was possessed turns and looks at him and begins to run at him full speed as fast as he can. Brother Troy, he said when he got from about me to you, he said, I pointed my finger at him and said, you will not spit on me. And he fell face first on the ground. He said within five minutes, that boy had repented and got the Holy Ghost. They took him in the church and baptized him. After all this was over, the guy on the hood of the car, mouth wide open. How'd you do that? He's chasing me. I know your pastor. He's chasing me. I'm on the hood of the car. He's trying to bite me and spit on me. And that pastor looked back at him and said, it has nothing to do with my title. I said, it's because I know who I am in God. And he said, boy, it's time for you to realize who you are in God. Can I tell you that we've got too much dormant power on our pews? Didn't he say you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you? Didn't he say these signs shall follow them that believe? Not them that are preachers. Not them that are teachers. Not them that are musicians. But these signs shall follow them that believe. You don't have to be a preacher to lay your hands on somebody and God fill them with the Holy Ghost. You don't have to be a preacher or a Sunday school teacher for you to pray the prayer of faith and God heal the sick. Either you're a believer or you're not a believer. But if you've got the Holy Ghost, there's an anointing and there's something God wants you to do. I'm telling you, I'm a, I believe hell's afraid that the apostolic church is going to wake up and realize we're more than who we think we are. And if we ever got the revelation of ourselves that hell already has of us, We'd turn our world upside down. Isn't it amazing every time Jesus went somewhere and somebody was devil-possessed, the devils always cried out and said, I know who you are. 
you're the Holy One of God. And while the devils knew who Jesus was, the Jews had no clue. I think it's time that we see ourselves how hell already sees us. Hell doesn't look at this church and see a weak, anemic church. He doesn't look at the families of this church. And boy, i got to move on, but I'm stuck right here. He doesn't look at the families of this church and the young people of this church and just see us as some broke-down piece of flesh that comes to service after service. Ladies and gentlemen, he understands what we are. He understands what we have. He understands the power of the Holy Ghost that is inside of us. And hell is afraid of the day that there's going to be some apostolics in Bendale, Loosedale, Mississippi who wakes up and realizes it's not me, but there's a God inside of me. He's the one that's going to make the difference. You get a revelation of who Jesus is, he in return will then give you a revelation of yourself. We love to quote, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we put a period. You got to keep reading. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Because you get a revelation of who he is, he then will give you a revelation of who you are. But can I tell you, there's a third thing that happened at the gates of hell. Jesus then makes the bold and prophetic declaration that I will build my church. and The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can I tell you this evening that that was not a statement meaning from that moment forward. That was an eternal statement Jesus was making because he was reaching all the way back in the garden when the serpent tried to beguile Eve. And Jesus said the serpent tried to stop the church then, but he didn't. He's trying to stop the church now, but he won't. And he's going to continue trying to stop the church in the future, but he will not prevail. Because like I told you Sunday night, the fight is fixed. The church is going to be triumphant. And the only way that's possible is because it's his church. Only God, Brother Moore, could take his church through a pandemic. And we don't shut the doors. I read an article just the other day that there were tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of churches that shut their doors during COVID and they have not opened up back since. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, but I didn't say it. Jesus did. I'm just kind of repeating it. Jesus said... Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That tells me that Jesus will not defend every church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is not going to go to war for every denomination. He's not going to go to war for every church on the corner. The only church that Jesus said, I'm going to defend is the church that is sitting upon this rock. Now, what is this rock? It was not Peter, like some believe it was. Because you look at the Greek language, I don't have time to get into it. He calls Peter Petros, little pebble. But the word rock is Petro, which means a large boulder. So Jesus was not saying that I'm going to build my church on Peter. Jesus was saying, I'm going to build my church on the revelation that Peter has. The only church that Jesus is going to defend, the only church that Jesus shed his blood for, the only church, and I, I'm saying that word church, and 
Boy, that can get you in a lot of trouble these days. But you understand what I'm saying. The only church or ecclesia that Jesus is going to defend is the church that sits on the foundation of who he is. That is the reason why the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And only God can take a church through a pandemic and come out on the other side with more people than they had when they went in the pandemic. Furthermore, I cannot tell you the churches I've preached at during COVID and post-COVID where the pastors would tell me this was our role before COVID. This is our role after COVID, and they've grown 50 people. I don't know where they come from, they tell me. This was our tithes and offerings before COVID. It doubled and tripled during COVID. Only God can do that because it's not my church, and it's not your church. It's his church. And the government can do whatever they want to do, but they're not going to stop the church. They can pass any law they want to pass, but the church is still going to keep standing. They can pass laws in California that say you can't chant, you can't worship. You remember that? You can't chant and worship. Boy, I'm off on a soapbox right now. You can't do this, you can't do that. That's not right. We're not going to do that. They can do everything they want to do, but here's the church three and a half years later, and we're still growing, and we're still having revival, and we're still baptizing people because it's His church. And you hear me right now. I not only believe that there's a revelation of Jesus coming to this world, but there's also a restoration coming to people that already know who Jesus is, but for whatever reason, they walked away. Can I tell you what God dealt me about the turn of this year? He said not only will there be a revelation that comes to people that have never heard truth, but there's also a restoration coming to people that know truth. And they left for whatever reason. They may be in the pig pen right now. They may be wasting the father's inheritance right now. They may even be like that prodigal, feeding pigs. Why is a Jew feeding pigs? You know what he's doing? He's feeding things that in return will not feed him. Because Jews couldn't eat pork. God help them. The fact is, he's pouring all of his energy and effort into things that will not give the same return. He's in a far country, but you know what? The Bible says he woke up one day. And the Bible says he came to himself. And he remembered there's a house. And there's a father. And the Bible says when that boy started going back to the father's house, the father didn't wait for him to get on the porch and open the door. The father ran out to meet him, meaning, given the inclination and the idea that the father stood at that window every day waiting for the day for that boy to come back. I believe God does the same things to backsliders. I believe God waits in anticipation for the day that they wake up and come to themselves and realize there's a church in Bendale And I'm going to tell you something else the Lord dealt with me about. And I've said it a few times here and there. God also said whenever they come back, let the past be in the past. Why they left is no longer important. What is important is that they came back. 
And I don't want to have an older brother spirit and mentality that says, well, I've never left. I've been here the whole time. Why aren't they throwing me a party? Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says he that was lost is now found. Just hold the door open and love them and restore them and watch God bless you and watch God, and watch God bless your family. It's not my church. It's God's church. And God can save whoever he wants to save. Paul talks about an invisible church in the New Testament. He said there's a church in the grave. There's a church on the ground. Paul's given us the idea that there's a day coming when the trumpet's going to sound and they that are asleep in Christ are going to rise first. Then we, we that are alive and remain are going to be caught up with him in the air. There is a church in the grave. Meaning, not one more person could be baptized or get the Holy Ghost and there's still a church in the grave. We've all buried lost uh, loved ones that we've lost due to death, sickness, whatever the reason. We've all buried people that died in the faith. We've all got loved ones and friends in the grave waiting for that day to come, for the trumpet to sound. There is a church of faithful people in the grave. But can I tell you, there's another type of invisible church that Jesus speaks of. Jesus not only lets us know that there is an invisible church on the ground. But Jesus one day says, I have sheep not of this fold, but them I must also bring. Can I tell you that another part of God's church that are going to come in are those that have not yet come in, but will come in at the call. What I'm saying, Bendale, Loosedale, Mississippi, is what is here right now is not all there will be because there's more that God's going to send on the way. What's sitting on these pews tonight isn't all that God has planned. He said, I've got sheep that are not of this fold, but there's a day coming that I'm going to bring them in. And there's going to be a church. There's going to be a revival church. How many in this room says, I want to be a part of not a church that's barely hanging on, not a church that's barely thrive, surviving, but I want to be a part of a church where people are being baptized and receiving the Holy Ghost every single week. God is not coming back after a church any less than what he left. There's going to be a church because it's his church. Can I tell you there's a fourth thing that happened right there in Matthew 16 at the gates of hell. Because it's right here. The disciples are dealt with a dose of reality that they cannot do this by themselves. There's a boy, demon possessed the Bible says. The possession was so severe that he would throw himself in the water and then in the fire. In the water and in the fire. And they cannot cast out that devil. Now that's amazing because just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had given them power and authority to cast out devils, heal the sick, and raise the dead. If they've got the power to cast the devil out, why can't they cast the devil out? It's because I believe now it's different simply because they're now standing at the gates of hell. And there's different spirits that you've got to deal with when you're standing on hell's doorstep. My point is, in these last days, we're going to have to deal with things that we have probably never dealt with in our lifetime. We're dealing with it right now in our school systems. We're dealing with it right now 
all across America and our world. Things that I never thought we would have dealt with just 15, 20 years ago. But can I tell you, we're living at hell's doorstep. We're living at the gates of hell, and there's spirits now we're dealing with that we have never dealt with. This transgender movement, non-binary. Last time I read, there's 97 different genders. But when I go to buy a shirt, they ask me, what do you, what do you want, male or female? I'm like, where's the other 95? But we're dealing with all this. I mean, Hollywood and the government pushing their anti-God and anti-Christ agenda. Doing everything they can to squeeze the life out of the church. The church of Satan and the church of Lucifer is more defiant now than they've ever been. We're dealing with things right now. We probably never thought we'd ever dream of. We knew the day would come. We probably thought we would never deal with it. Can I tell this congregation that we as the church are fighting devils and we're fighting spirits. And we cannot do it by ourselves. Just like those nine disciples were ineffective against that spirit. We too are ineffective because at the end of the day, it's not going to happen unless we have God's help. Because we are insufficient alone and we cannot manufacture the move of God that we desperately need and want. We're weak by ourselves, but it's in this moment Jesus provides a remedy. Jesus says, boys, I know you've prayed and I know that that devil has not budged. But these things only come but by prayer and fasting. The only time in the Gospels those two words are used together is in that setting, Matthew 16. Jesus said, boys, you're bumping up against things that you have no authority over right now. I'll tell you how to fix it. You're going to have to pray more, and you're going to have to fast more than you've ever prayed and fasted before. Oh, preacher, you're going to talk about prayer and fasting. You better believe it. Because I know it's old-fashioned, but it still works. I know we've heard prayer and fasting preached until it's coming out of our ears. But at the end of the day, there's some things that will not come out. There are some things, man, I feel my holy. There are some things that will not budge. There are some things that will look at us defiantly and laugh at us and mock at us. Jesus says, I've got a remedy. You better pray and fast more than you've ever prayed and fasted. How many times do we wonder why nothing's breaking and nothing is changing and why strongholds aren't being destroyed? It's in that moment we got to remind ourselves that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by His Spirit. Programs, administration, and the list goes on and on cannot do what prayer and fasting can do. Could you not watch with me for just one hour? Could you not just pray one hour? Jesus oftentimes throughout the Gospels would try to just reiterate the fact when you pray, when you pray. Can you not pray one hour? I read a statistic some time ago, and I'm, I'm so far away from my notes. I read a statistic some time ago, Brother Moore, that the average Christian, now this is not Pentecostal, this is not the average Christian, the umbrella of Christianity in America, so that covers a lot. The average Christian prays six minutes a day. That covers 
every denomination, not just apostolics. The average Christian, boy, it's getting quiet now. Start talking about prayer. The average Christian prays six minutes a day because we're pulled this way and we're pulled that way and we're distracted by this and we want to do that. Jesus said there's some things that will not break. There's some breakthroughs you will not have until you're willing to push and pray and fast more. And here we go. This is where we get to the last thing that happens because right there at that moment, at that moment of their weakness, and that moment of their inability to take care of that situation, at that moment of being at the gates of hell, six days recuperating from a 35-mile mountain climb. Look at a geography. Look at the geography on a map when you get time because from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi was 35 miles uphill. I can't imagine having to walk 35 miles at a steady incline, only then to hear Jesus say, why don't you come up a little bit higher? Lord, I know you're God and all. I'm not. We've hiked 35 miles the last six days. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to come these 35 miles. But Jesus then, watch this, he goes, if you'll come up a little bit higher, there's something I want to show you. What do you mean go higher? Because we're weary now and we're tired now. But Jesus says, if you can muster up a little bit more energy, I promise you, boys, it'll be worth the journey and the trip. I believe that right there in Matthew 16 is where the church as a whole is at right now. I believe the church is at the very doorstep and the gates of hell. And we're tired of spinning our wheels and we're tired of fighting devils that won't budge. We've done all the praying and the fasting, but can I tell you, in the midst of their fatigue, in the midst of their weariness, there were three who said, Lord, I've got every excuse in the world not to go any further. But I'll start climbing. And the amazing thing is, is when you put that story together in context, the mountain those three men climbed was the mountain of transfiguration. And when Peter, James, and John finished climbing that mountain, there they begin to see Jesus in a way that they had never seen him before. Standing on that mountain in all of his splendor and glory and majesty and power, Peter, James, and John stand there amazed because they've never seen him like this. I've seen him walk on water. But I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen him multiply bread and fish, but I've never seen anything like this before. I've seen him raise the dead and heal blinded eyes and heal withered hands. Uh, can I tell you that on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus uh, was in the process of glorification. Uh, light was not shining on him. Uh, light was shining through him. Uh, his garments were shining whiter than any raiment. Uh, the power of God's glory was emanating uh, and displaying in his life. Uh, can I tell you, it's right now where we are. I believe God sees the church today uh, just like he saw his three disciples then. Uh, and he says, boys, uh, I know 
know you're tired. I believe the message to the church today is he knows we're weary and he knows we're tired like we talked about Sunday night. But I believe there's a challenge, Brother Moore, going out to every church, every apostolic church that says if you're really hungry and you're really desperate and you really want to see my glory, I'll show you my glory in a way that you've never seen before. The Bible says when they begin to look at him, they never saw it on that fashion. Ladies and gentlemen, even when they walked down the mountain, Jesus was emanating, and the people were amazed because they had never seen him like that. And he walks up to that boy and casts the devil out of that boy. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying that if we're willing to climb a little more, if we're willing to push a little further, if we're willing to sacrifice a little bit more, there is a glory on top of that mountain that's going to make the climb worth it. As we stand all over this room, I believe in these last days there's a challenge going out to every church. I'll show you my glory. I'll show you my power. I'll show you supernatural things that you've only read about if you're willing to keep climbing. There's a drive inside of me he says, Lord, I'm glad that I get to hear about everything in the past. But I want to see it myself. There's a drive inside of me. He says, Lord, if I got to pray more, I'll pray more. If I got to sacrifice more, I'll sacrifice more. Because I'm glad of everything you've done in this book. And I'm glad for everything that you've done for my forefathers and our families and our moms and dads. I'm thankful for it. But this generation needs to see it. I got kids right now at a youth camp that I left to come preach, and they need to see God's glory. They need to see God's power. And I wonder if there's some people in this room. I know it's a Wednesday night, but I wonder if there's people in this house who would say, you know what? I'll do whatever I've got to do. I'll pray more if i got to pray more. I'll fast another day. I'll sacrifice my time. I'll push away things that I like. But I've got to see God's glory. If that's you, I wonder if you could step out of your pew and come to this front and lift your hands and be sincere and be honest and be desperate at the same time and say, God, I want to see your glory now. Come on, we need him to reveal himself in a way. Three out of 12 made the climb. 25%. I think I got more than 25% in this house right now wanting to climb. Come on, I feel a push in the Holy Ghost. I'm not trying to belabor the point. I preach long enough. But I'm saying there's a call right now. There's a challenge right now going out in the Holy Ghost that says, How bad do you want it? How bad do you want to see more people baptized? How bad do you want to see more people filled with the Holy Ghost? How bad do you want it to be your family and your lost loved ones and the prodigals that you pray for and the friends that you go to school with? Come on, let's push right now just for a moment before we dismiss. Come on, let there be a hunger and a passion that's birthed right now on a Wednesday night.
Just talk to Jesus a minute. Just, just call on His name. Nothing. Hear me again tonight, church. There's still nothing more powerful than calling on the name of Jesus. I'm going to do a search through the scriptures. I'm going to prove that point. It's more powerful than speaking in tongues. It's more powerful than anything else on the face of this earth. I'm telling you, calling on the name of Jesus when you can't do nothing else. Thy son of David, have mercy on me. That's what's going to break this. That's what's going to break. You know what we're waiting on? We're waiting on an entertainment. We're waiting on somebody to get the right song. We're waiting on somebody to say the right thing. We're waiting on somebody beside it. Come on, you break through. I can't move because I'm afraid to step out. I'm really afraid. We're apostolic and we, we're really a little hesitant. Jesus! 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 No, that's a, you're, you're some loony or something like that. You're on something. Yeah, we're on something on Jesus. Because when you really begin to call on him with honesty and sincerity and all of your mind, he shows up. And when he shows up, I'm telling you, nobody, nobody has to tell you when he shows up. Nobody has to tell you when he touches you. Nobody. I'm telling you that just something transactions in the atmosphere that changes everything around us. That's what we got to hunger for. That's what we got to thirst for. Because if apostolics are not, not careful, we're slipping into that entertainment realm. With our music and everything else, even our preachers. Our preachers have got the pressure on them to perform. Come up with new little statements and new little this and new that. And, you know, and how fast we can do it and how... You know who we need? You know who we need our singing? You know who we need our preaching? You know you need your praying? You know you need your worship? I'll tell you the absence of Jesus. It doesn't matter how good I preach, how well I sing, how I impress, I impress everybody. If Jesus is not in the house, I'm wasting my time and talent. I want Jesus on board. Because of Jesus on board, it doesn't matter how big the storm is, how many devils, how big the devils are. The people who got Jesus on board is going to survive the journey. That's right. I want him on board. I want him calling the shots. I want him getting the glory. <laughs> Amen. It's all wrapped up and it's all about Jesus. I'm the first to confess, yep, we're that Jesus-only bunch. Because without him, you have nothing. But in him, I got all things. Money can't buy what he can do for me. Education can't accomplish what he can do for me. Nobody can heal me like he can heal me. Nobody can save my family like he can save them. They, nobody can drive the devil out and keep the devil out. They, nobody can keep me in the church like he can keep me. Ain't nobody help me in this life. Amen. Like Jesus can help me. I'm telling you, we got to have more of Jesus. We got to have more of Jesus and we can't do it without him. So that's when you got to talk to him. That's when you got to spend time with him. And you got to spend some of that private time. In fact, we need to get back to some of it being so private. I'm not going to put a CD in.
I'm not going to let the cell phone doing this and nothing else. It's going to be me and Jesus. It's going to be me and the Holy Ghost. I'm not, not going to be prompted up and I'm not going to be No, it's going to be me and the Holy Ghost. And when you walk in that spirit, honey, I'm telling you right now, you won't get up in the morning fretting and worrying about what you're going to do and what's going to happen. Oh, no. He, he mentioned it already. He made this day. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Regardless of what comes, I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. So we're just going to keep on keeping on. Because they got to have a place to come back. <laughs> you know what? When he mentioned that about the prodigal son. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start partying now. I'm not going to be like that brother. <laughs> I want him to come back to the party. His brother already should have thrown two or three parties. If his brother been throwing some parties, maybe some of them other cats that done showed up. Yeah, leave them for God to party. You got to shake that spirit off. It's not a regret leaving for Jesus Christ. Thank God I've been called out of the world. Thank God I'm not bound by the thing of this world. Get out too long. You can't serve two masters. I'm glad Jesus Christ is my master. He ain't never asked me to do anything. It's too hard. Woo! And I'll tell you, there's nothing like him. Walk with us and help us. By my mind. God's good. God's good. He is so good to us. Thank you, Brother Sanford. Man. <laughs> Preach the word to us. Man, to get the preacher stirred up in us. Hallelujah. So let's keep praying for one another. You keep praying for that five-fold ministry. You keep praying for these churches and having these hundred souls revival because our time's coming. <laughs> I'm praying for them. And I'm praying to keep every one of them and get some more of them. <laughs> That's right. And I'm not looking for loopholes or why they're having them either. I believe it's a blessing to God and the favor of God. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go down those roads. You've you got to let God work. Let God work. Next week, good Lord will, we're going to take an offering for Tupelo's mansion. You may don't make, a, make a note of that. Uh, it's kind of like Christmas in July is what they call it. And we try to always help them then. And then a lot of times, again, later in the year. So if you would remember that and uh, maybe put something aside or to help them. If you ever, you know, read some of the stories and uh, situations where some of you that got that letter, even the one we got here, it talks about a mother that had a few-month-old child. And they was living in an automobile. And all that baby ever knew for four months was a car seat. He was actually had some deformities because he didn't know anything about having what they call tummy time and to get out to crawl. And all it knows was a car seat. And finally that mother called on Tupelo Mansion to take those. Had an older son, older brother. I believe it was eight years old. But anyway, just horrible stories. And sometimes we think we got it rough. <laughs> and then when you read those kind of situations that goes on, and man, you just realize that the goodness of God, 
the goodness of God that's been on us. Don't forget Father's Son's Banquet Friday night, 7 o'clock, the Fellowship Hall. Uh, you can wait to then and pay, or if you'd like, get with Brother Josh tonight. It's up to you, uh, one way or the other. And uh, But uh, looking forward to that. So come and be a part of it. If you're planning on being a part of it, we'd love for you to come. Join with us, just eating, having a good time. It's a good fellowship. Amen. The help of the Lord. Amen. Youth, if you don't mind, give us, a, I'd like to know all the senior and junior. Make sure so when we head out of here or they head out of here Monday morning, amen, everybody's on board and everybody's going and all that good stuff. So we'll, we'll know who expects coming if you don't mind, okay? Don't forget Father's Day this coming Sunday. Be a Sunday morning service only. And uh, so if you're planning, please plan to come. And, hey, let's be early. Let's talk to God. Let's have a move of the Holy Ghost. We're not going to be in a rush. We're going to have a good time. And then you'll have all the afternoon spend with going with your fathers or whatever. Because I know several of you have got several places to go. And I understand that. All right. Love you. Appreciate you. Any other announcements? All right. God bless you. Appreciate you. You're dismissed.